Jackson Sabonis two-man game inside. Domas dominant, dynamite inside on that one. Not afraid, and he got some dog in. And the steal, they can tie it with a three. Murray, yes, a Murray miracle in the desert. Welcome back to another episode of the Kings Pulse Podcast presented by the Kings Herald. My name is Brendan Nunez, and today we got Tony East joining the show who covers the Indiana Pacers for a handful of different places, including the Locked On Pacers podcast. What's up, Tony? How you doing? I'm great. Pacers are done with uh, meaningless summer league games, which I like when they're trying and don't like when they're not. So I'm in a great mood because the meaningless games are done. Yeah, those last couple ones can be maybe a little bit tough. Uh, the last game for Sacramento was a little bit of a tough viewing experience, but we've made it through. The Pacers had a uh, 11 assists today in the whole 11. game. <laughs> not, not, not a good offensive group to uh, close out the Vegas experience. So. Not the most beautiful basketball. Um, but Tony brought you on today to talk about Chris Duarte, who I initially got introduced to during my time in Vegas and was just traded from Indiana to Sacramento um, and kind of wanted to use your, perspective and get your insight as somebody that covered him when he first got drafted to just get the um, Duarte NBA experience up to this point, starting with when he was drafted in that, that 2021 draft taken at 13. I, I think it came as a little bit of a surprise from myself on the outside. Um, but what were your initial impressions of Duarte during that time of the draft and, and how was that pick in general taken? Pacers had him pretty high. They liked him for a couple weeks leading up to the draft. I had him like close to 20th on my board that year. My board doesn't matter at all. Just for transparency, I was wrong. Um, and they picked him 13. They liked him. And a lot of teams liked him. Like even after they picked him, the Knicks wanted to trade to get him. The Warriors wanted to trade to get him. That's been well documented still. And some of the rationale was really fascinating at the time because the Pacers had just switched to Rick Carlisle as their head coach. They were trying to figure out this whole Sabonis-Turner pairing. Kings know well about Sabonis, so I can talk about all these things. Um, and figure out what their next team was going to look like with Brogdon Levert in the backcourt. And they needed wings. They needed a wing who could kind of contribute right away. Hey, look, this 24-year-old rookie who we really like is available. And they picked him, and they picked Isaiah Jackson, who's the opposite, a project first, with their other first-round leaguers. They were kind of towing the line between two eras, but they thought Chris could contribute pretty quickly. And they scored 27 points in their first game and proved them right. But... It's really interesting to look back on that draft, especially considering the direction the Pacers have taken, which the Kings know all too well because the face of that rebuild was on their team, you know, that they picked a player they thought was ready to play right away in the lottery that year. And he was, he was fantastic. And the pick was medium received at the time, I guess, like most people wanted somebody younger or somebody who they perceived to be better. Moses Moody was really popular amongst the uh, Pacers fan base that year, but Duarte was really great his first year and made people forget about that. And then not so great last year. So um, really interesting pick, even in retrospect, especially the rationale for it. But he proved everybody wrong, at least right out of the gate uh, on the team they actually drafted him to fit on. Yeah, and to go into that initial fit, you mentioned him dropping 27 in game one. He scores double digits in nine in his first nine games. Through 10 games, he's averaging 16 points. Um, what was the the immediate impact of, of Duarte like? Like, where did you notice him uh, finding ways to contribute pretty quickly? was interesting because they had no wings. Like I said, Doug McDermott left that summer. They couldn't afford him at all. 
and TJ Warren was hurt, so they had nothing there. So he started right away, and you never know with rookies what they're going to give you in year one, but this this kind of started my fan of my, the biggest skill I have for him is the shooting. He could shoot it right away. Like in that 27-point game, he had six threes. He had three in the next game. Like I think only once in his first 10 games, he had one three or fewer. I can't remember exactly what it was. He was like on fire to start his career, and they were like tough shots, and so it became clear pretty quickly that he could shoot, and that's what that group needed. Like Brogdon can shoot, but he was playing point guard. He wasn't as good on the ball as a shooter. Levert wasn't a great shooter. Turner wasn't a great shooter that year, and Sabonis is much better five feet in as Kings fans know all too well. So they had no shooting. That was huge out of the gate. The fact that not only was he taking them, he was drilling them for that first 10 game stretch. And it didn't, it didn't take a lot of imagination to squeeze him into their offense, right? They could just do the stuff they were already doing with that. When it, whether that was Warren or McDermott or whoever, he fit in really well right away. And, you know, obviously he doesn't have the shooting McDermott does or the off the dribble stuff Warren had at the time, but he could do just enough of both that, didn't have to change anything around him. So the shooting really stood out right away. I think that was a big part of his scoring, but he could kind of just do everything, right? He could pair with Sabonis in the two-man game, which was huge for some of the wings before him. He could find his own little shots in the mid post. He loved this elbow fadeaway. That's actually my least favorite one of his shots, but he loves it. Um, and, you know, he just tries all these little moves that he's got in his bag and goes for it. And at the time, they were all going in. Like, he started off very efficient to open his career. Didn't have a real dud of a game until like a month in when they went to Denver and he got his butt kicked by the altitude. So yeah, he started off really strong and just kind of fit in all these pet actions that Pacers team had. And they stumbled a little out the gate, but they were about 500 before COVID hit them and they had to change directions completely, but he fit in right away. He can do a lot of good stuff. What was your initial impression of him off of the floor? Um, you know, introductory presser and, and maybe some of the ways you noticed he was interacting with the guys around the team early on. He got into basketball a little later. Obviously, he's older. Um, so his English wasn't perfect right away, which was really interesting to watch him evolve in that way, right? Like, you've met him. His English is great now, but it wasn't, right? When he came to the league, he uh, came to the United States, I think, at 16 or 17, and then did JUCO for a couple years before uh, playing at Oregon. And, you know, he started high school later. So, like, he, you know, being 24 when you get drafted, but his English wasn't amazing. And so his interactions with teammates were a little different, except for one Demontis Sabonis, who can speak other languages, which was great for him to get along with guys. But he gets along with with everybody, I would say. And that's kind of the first tip you get that a guy's a good hearted dude is they don't have beef with anyone. And well, off the court, at least they don't have beef with anyone. They're not stepping on anybody's toes. That's just like a guy that people want to be around. And with us, a lot of his motivations for discussion and talking were about his son. Right. He always would go on road trips. And I think the hardest thing for him adjusting to the NBA was not being around his son, Chris Jr. as much. He loves his son um, and his family. He posts a lot on social media about his kids and his family. And I think that was really hard for him at first, like the shock value of being away for a while and having to FaceTime them because they weren't with him on the trips at first. So he's just a good-hearted dude who pours a lot into his relationships, both his teammates and his his people in his life. And I think that says a lot about him and how well he got along with, with those in Indiana. The, the, the relationships part of his, especially his first year with Domas, were, were a really good part of his start to his career. Yeah, you could definitely tell, um, again, just from the initial introduction in Vegas, he said he could talk about Domas all, all day long, um, <laughs> that he really helped with his adjustment on and off the court. And we've seen in Sacramento, I'm, I'm sure you've seen plenty as well, like Domas making his teammates better. I think there's a lot of examples. Just looking at last year, Kevin Herter, Keegan Murray, De'Aaron Fox, 
Um, you see a handful of these guys, but and I'm sure you've seen a, a good bit as well. But did it feel almost sort of on a on a different level with Duarte when it came to on the floor, or did you feel like a lot of that a lot of this does have to do with there's also that added layer of the off the court or, or speaking the same language? Yeah, they they paired really well on the floor. The guys he was the closest with, I would say, were Brogdon, McConnell, and Sabonis. Uh, in terms of just who he was close to as a person on the court. Yeah, he paid, play, excuse me, paired. I can't talk very well with Domas. And you can look at the numbers like when those two shared the floor. This is a terrible Pacers team, by the way. This team won 25 games. These net ratings I'm about to talk about. In their 850 minutes together, his first year, plus 1.5 net rating. Pretty good. With just Sabonis, no Duarte, minus 3.1. With just Duarte, no Sabonis, minus 6.5. And with neither, minus 5.3. Like they were pretty bad in most combinations of players they had on the floor last year but if you look at their on off data together and separate it's like oh wow these guys really add to each other and one of them can shoot and one of them is the best screener in the nba who can do a bunch of other stuff like this just unlocks the best version of this pacers team and they were mostly solid on defense which is actually where i think duarte kind of gets underrated and a lot of discussions about him like they were just like you know what you're a rookie but you're our best chance go guard kd like he had a run of four games i think he was like on katie dame fox and i can't remember the other one um, but they were just throwing him on great players all the time because he was the only like six foot wing who could move a little bit so yeah i mean the pairing with sabonis was obviously fantastic by the numbers but that, that was like one of the only groups that really worked <laughs> was that opening five that those two were in on a terrible team so yeah they paired well off the floor too but really on the court you could see that kind of shine together and that was a big part of his kind of we'll talk about this but his changes in year two yeah, and I want to ask you about that defense because, you know, I just naturally in the course of this get more familiar with the West Coast teams. And I, I think Duarte's defense is something I hear talked about a lot, but I haven't um, seen enough of myself to um, have a super strong opinion on. But what were your impressions of him defensively? Um, what sort of positions do you think that we're talking about here? Sacramento has a lot of guards. That's the situation he was dealing with in Indiana as well. Um, and I'd imagine that we're talking a little bit more of Duarte at the three here. But what do you think of of that potential and just how he performs as a defender? I think he's better as a three <laughs> myself. I mean, I got it. Fans never agreed with me. I think it was a King show, so I won't get yelled at. I always called him a three. Like both years he was here and everybody else thought he was a two. I never got that. Like he's not, it's not even like, there's no real re differentiation anymore. Honestly, like it's, you're an off ball guard, you're a wing, whatever, but you know, he guards threes. Like, that's enough for me to call you a three. If you can guard the position, you can play it because offensive roles are so fluid. And he he's – like, on the ball is definitely better for him than off the ball. I think that is definitely the biggest growth point for him and, and, and most young players, to be clear. But um, to also, for the rest of the show, just for anyone listening, if I call him young, it's because he's been in the league for two years, not because he's young on the age chart. Um, but, you know, inexperienced players, to be more clear – typically struggle with team defense, like especially for him this year, he's going to have to learn all new terminology, a whole new scheme with Mike Brown. Then he played in Indiana and they actually changed it a little bit from year one to year two. And so the team defense part, not the greatest, right? It's a little slower on the rotations can get caught watching his, his man or the ball on the ball. He's really solid, right? He's got quick feet. He is six, six. He can stay in front of guys who have the ball. He can stay on his man when they're someone who requires attention on the perimeter. Like that's where I think he's the best is, that kind of part of defense again. That's why they were throwing him on these stars when they had, when they, when they could, because he was a lot of times their best option to do so. And so I think that that is where he'll be the best. It, um, 
on defense is at the three because he's got the size and speed to do it. And if you can guard the position, you can play the position. And again, it's semantics. Like if you're not De'Aaron Fox, <laughs> you're a wing <laughs> on the Kings or with whoever, you know, with the second unit too. Um, but I think he can do that. And I think he did do that with the Pacers a lot. Uh, and he was like, I've been around these players all the time, right? Like Aaron Neesmith, uh, Ben Matherin, Duarte, all these guys were similar heights. Like Duarte was the tallest of them to me very clearly. So you know, he he has wing size. He can guard them well enough that I think he's probably better at the three than the two, especially because he can shoot it, at least he could his rookie year, uh, in a way that makes you believe that he can play basically any offensive position if he makes the shot. So if you can guard threes, you can play the three. There you go. Chris Duarte is a three to me. And it certainly looks like Sacramento is is sort of viewing him in that aspect as well. And I agree with you. You know, there's not that much of a difference really in in these roles that we're talking about. But I think having that positional size to guard some of the bigger wings when need be is something that could be pretty intriguing from Sacramento's standpoint. And then now I want to I will add one thing Uh, at at a nice 190 pounds, like he'll get punked by like OG and you know, like bulky wings, but yeah. most wings he can hang with, if that makes sense. Like if they're huge, like Gordon Hayward would give him trouble. Um, they're, they're, you know, guys who you would think of as like bulky on um, Jarris Walker, <laughs> um, guys you think of as bulky at the three, four, he probably can't hold up with as well, even though he does have skill on the ball. Sorry. Continue. No, makes sense. I appreciate you adding that. Um, so after the, the trade happens, the Sabonis Halliburton swap, um, the, Roster construction is uh, a little different for both of these teams. And also not long after you see Duarte not play in the final in 19 of the final 24 games of that season. Uh, but from what, what did you see with an adjustment standpoint from that roster after the move was made and, and sort of where that left Duarte as they figured things out? Yeah, this is one of the more interesting parts of his decline in year two is that, you know, he goes hurt. But right after the trade deadline, they had this game against the Cavs and the Pacers scored like 47 points in the first quarter. And everybody's like, oh, my God, Tyrese Halbert the best thing that's ever happened to this team. They lost this game, by the way. They scored like a million points in the first quarter. They lost. And Duarte was great. He had 18 points and looks like he's fitting in with this new core. And then he's hurt coming out of the break. Uh, so we only played in like six games or something after they made moves, but he, he he wasn't like efficient, but he wasn't bad. He played fine. Like he had 46% from deep in that stretch, averaged like 10 points a game. So everybody kind of thought like, okay, this pairing still makes sense. You've got this off-ball guard wing type. You've got this high-level creator. So yeah, it was totally a different experience and a lot of like the simple stuff he could get into with Sabonis were gone, but he still played fine with the group. And like, there was a lot of talk of like, okay, here, these two guys are part of the core. How do you keep going from there? I think he would like you could tell the scoring number was 9.9. It was below 10. Like you could tell there was definitely a difference in the way he was playing, but he's also hurt. So it's kind of hard to balance. Like he's injured. This is a new look team. His best partner's gone all at the same time to give any context to it, especially with the, the sample being as small as it was to be more clear. Uh, it was seven games, not six. So it was kind of hard to figure out exactly what was what, especially because he started off with that 18 point game. And so the, you know, the first impression was just like, oh, yeah, this will work. Um, so it's kind of hard to get a feel for it. But you could tell there was sort of a little bit of a change, especially because Halberton just has the ball so much. It still does. Um, so I think more of it looking back was probably injury related. And that's a big part of his last season, too. But certainly losing Sabonis hurt him and the, ch- the quick change in style. I think this will be something that maybe he struggles with at first. with The Kings, too, uh, was something that also kind of slowed him a bit. 
NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2. Now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shots! 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 Now streaming. He was just released from jail. Where can I get a drink around here? Back on vacation. This place is nice. It's drug lord nice. I'm sorry, drug lord nice? With more baggage. Ever since he showed up, he turned this relaxing vacation into total chaos. Who does that? Vacation Friends 2. Rated R. Now streaming only on Hulu. And then you go into next year. He starts the first two games. Uh, he comes off the bench for the next four, starts the next three. Those are the first nine games he plays. And he has a 30 ball in there as well. Uh, the other games maybe are not the uh, prettiest score lines. <laughs> but then he sits the next 21 games because of an injury, um, plays for a good stretch. And then again, end of the year, didn't play in 12 of the last 13 games. Um, he mentioned at in, in Vegas recently that maybe he came back a little bit quicker than he should have from his injury with the um, hope of helping the team and uh, that maybe that played a factor here. But what was the experience like last year? You know, it, it, from the outside looking in, there's a little bit of a positional competition with a lot of depth at that sort of two, three spot um, and, and then the injuries here as well. Yeah, it was strange kind of how it all went down because early in the season, I thought he'd be like a for sure starter, right? Because he looked so good the year before and like they're building this young core, they're rebuilding. And he did start the first two games and then he didn't. And then he did again. And it was like you, you, you made the, the change in tone. Like he kind of (laughs) sucked scoring the ball in that early stretch of the season. Like he had the 30 point reminder of this stretch. I'm talking about, he's a 30 point game where he shot 10 for 15 in the stretch. And he's still in their first nine games. 39.4% from the field, 8.9 points per game, right? Like he struggled a ton at the beginning of the year and he wasn't hurt yet. So there was something to this that wasn't really clear. Now the slump busting game in Brooklyn gave everybody a ton of confidence. And in the very next game, he fell on top of Kyle Lowry and hurt his ankle and didn't play for a big stretch, you know, but I think what there's a couple of things that happened here. One is this is this. I, I alluded to this earlier, like, Totally change in style. Like they, even when they got Halliburton the year before, they still kind of played similarly to the, what they did with this, uh, with Sabonis on the team, just with the different roster. But then in the next season, it was like, okay, all this random action stuff and transition heavy. And there's less, I, I wouldn't say rules. That sounds wrong, but like, because it's more random, it's less structured by default. And Chris is really good at that, right? Like he's better when he knows when to cut or who he's moving off of or, you know, when there's just more structure in place, not that one or the other is better. It's just for him specifically. I think it took him a little bit to figure that out. And then he did in Brooklyn and scored 30 points and gets hurt the next game. So now out of the first 30 Pacers games with a fully new look team, he's played nine and the other 21 games, Andrew Nemhard's really grown into an important rotation piece. Aaron Neesmith has grown into an important rotation piece. Benedict Matherin is like, OMG, we have to play this guy 25 to 30 minutes per game. Good. And all of a sudden there's like no minutes for this kid who was, you know, second team all rookie the year before, like he came back and only played over 20 minutes once until the calendar flipped at 2023. Like they couldn't, they just couldn't find time for him. There wasn't the right spot on the team. And 
he was really struggling. He had a stretch. I don't know if you have his game log up from like right after Christmas to I can't even remember the game he finally scored. He missed 21 shots in a row across I can't remember how many games, seven or eight. Like it was really rough. And Rick Carlisle kept saying, you know, he's come back from injury. He's coming back from injury. You know, he's still recovering. And like, that's fine. But that might be what he was mentioning in Vegas is like he came back too fast. And so it was hard for him to kind of to, to play like himself. But at the same time, this team had built chemistry and style and identity and he missed all of it. Right. So he was trying to cut, catch back up and fit in in that way at the same time. And then he got hurt again and then he came back and then he got hurt again. Like he just all of a sudden. The fit never clicked for him. So that's one part of it is just unfortunate injury timing and the change in style all kind of culminating. Like I bet if his if his season flipped like chronologically and he could have played a bunch at the beginning and then had this big injury, I bet he would have had a better year. The other thing is Tyrus Halberton talked about having this be a part of his second season. Um, so did Isaiah Jackson. Like some some second year guys come into the league and they're like, I got this. You know, I've done a year. I know what this is about now. I don't have the pre-draft process like this. This will be easy. And then they start playing again. They're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. It's the NBA. Um, I think Halberton pointed like one of his worst games, his career coming very early in his second year. And it was like a wake up call for him. So I do wonder if an aspect of that happened to Duarte, just like mentally thinking, oh, like, oh this will be easy. I've already done this for a year. I was one of the best 10 rookies last year. And then you're not. And you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I got to focus on this a little more. I think that kind of happened to him, too. And then he got hurt. So lots of factors, uh, lots of stuff that kind of sound made up when you say them out loud, but at the same time, I think we're clearly a factor for him and just, it just never came together and injuries have been a factor for him his whole career, but they really hurt him last year. Yeah. Those 13 games right after he comes back from injury, um, four points on 24% from the field, 17.9% from three. Um, what do you make of, you know, obviously injuries do play a factor here, but what do you make of his sort of inconsistent um, shooting numbers? Like when, Again, when we talked to him and asked what he feels like he contributes to Sacramento, first thing he started with was I'm a shooter and he added plenty after, but yep. started with I'm a shooter. Um, and just, you know, looking at the numbers, there is some sort of some bits of inconsistency there that 36.9% in his first year, 31.6% last year. And that's on 33.7% on catch and shoots last season. Um, but what do you make of him? Well, we'll start with just as a, score you know as a as a shooter when it comes to spot ups but also maybe some of his uh shot selection questions that you hinted at earlier yeah i um it's funny to say that what was he last year 31.6 percent from three yeah. like pretty rough and i still like all season last year was like i think this guy's gonna be an elite shooter one day like he just buries tough threes and <laughs> open threes like he, he is a good shooter despite the percentages being completely whack last year and that is the only part that I kind of scratch my head at from last year. Like, cause I get him not fitting in very well and I get that he takes some shots that I just kind of go, Oh, you know, you got to quit doing that one. But his form is awesome. He's a great shooter in rhythm. He works on that all the time. It's just, I, I can't, I cannot explain the dip and that might make me look dumb. Like in the future, if he never is more than a 37% guy, everyone's going to go, why'd you think this guy'd be an elite shooter? But just like the way he can get him up is great. The way he knows how to get open is one of his best skills. And, and I've talked about this before with him a lot. You know, he last year didn't make shots at all. Like his percentages were awful, but I kept thinking all year it was like a slump that would end because if you look at his percentages of shots that were, you know, open, wide open, um, defender close, whatever the not open one, NBA.com says, um, 
he took more of his shots as open and wide open shots in his second year than his first year, right? So he was still like taking good shots and getting good looks. He just was missing, right? And so for a while you go, well, if he keeps taking the right shots, they'll go in and that's great. And they're creating good looks for him. You know, and, uh, you know at some point you have to go, okay, they're just not going to go in, you know? And I didn't know what that number was because as a rookie, he did make them. He made a ton of them. And that's why I was so high on his shooting. So for the three specifically last year, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to shrug and say, I don't know why they didn't go in. A lot of it's inside the arc shots. You know, I, I just think are a little force. Like he's, he's not the best at getting all the way to the rim last year, especially with the ankle thing, less than one fifth of his shots from zero to three feet. Um, and he upped his percentage of shots, you know, from like mid rangey ish types, which was not the smartest thing for him necessarily to do. And he missed a ton of those, like, and his finishing at the rim was worse too. So he does this like two dribble fade, like DeAndre Ayton type shot sometimes that it probably wants a game. Probably won't even do that anymore. I bet it's less than that now. I just hate. And he made a ton of him as a rookie. So it's like, ah, oh, whatever, you know, keep doing it. Um, as a rookie on long twos, 45%. Like you're like, all right, whatever. If you make that many, you should keep shooting him. And then last year they were awful. So I hate that shot. If he could get all the way to the rim or even just get to a floater more, He'd be better, but his shot selection definitely needs work. I think that's a part of his percentage dropping, even though in general, like he takes open shots and he knows how to get open from beyond the arc. So I just said a lot of contradictory stuff, but that's why I feel like as a shooter, especially from beyond the arc, he projects very well. It's the inside the arc game that needs work. And he got better looks inside the arc playing with the best screener and a user of cheap elbows, <laughs> Demonte Savonis in the NBA. I covered him. I'm allowed to say that. So that'll help him get open shots too, which I think will be good. Definitely. Well, we see, we see Domas uh, excelling with doing that all the time, even with, I can't uh, believe every player doesn't do it. Like how do people not see him like push his elbows wider than his chest, every screen <laughs> all the and time. Do it. Him, like, him it and Valanciunas. It's, not, it, it's only illegal if you move. Yeah. Valanciunas does it too. Um, like it's not technically illegal if you're standing still, but like no one really does it. I don't get it. Yeah. He's just beating people up the whole game. It, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I very does. much enjoyed the Domas experience. Not um, over. Oh, it's not. It's not at all. Didn't mean it that way in the slightest. Um, with Buddy Heald still there, Bruce Brown signed um, a larger role for Benedict Matherin, Andrew Nemhard, with Ben Shepard getting drafted as well. Um, did you feel like writing was on the wall for Duarte, or did the trade surprise you? The the value surprised me. We'll get to there. But in terms of him being traded, no, it didn't. Like every local radio thing I did, Every comment on stuff I'd write or talk about was like, who do you think is most likely to get traded? I feel like Chris has to be in that group because of what you just said. Even before they the draft with Shepard, like between Halliburton, Nemhard, Matherin, Heald, Neesmith, that's already five guys in your backcourt. I haven't even said TJ McConnell yet. Like a fully healthy Pacers team at best, Chris Duarte's playing five, ten minutes, and that's if you move Neesmith to the four. But then they drafted Jairus Walker, and that was no longer an option. So then his minutes were gone. So they're just like, there wasn't minutes for him, but he definitely had positive value because of his rookie year. So either him because of all those reasons I just said, or Buddy Heald because his contract's expiring now, or the two most commonly discussed, like, clear up the logjam trades. And I think that's the biggest reason for this. At least the, the reason that makes it make the most sense is just he wouldn't have played. So even if his value is maybe higher than what the trade actually was. His value to the Pacers specifically was very low, right? Like he was an out of the rotation player getting potentially an awesome second in that Mavs second is great. Even though I think his trade value 
for me would have been higher than it actually ended up being, if that makes sense. But that's why I think they actually did it. Yeah, it makes sense. And it ends up being the 2028 Dallas second and Sacramento's 2030 second, which is far enough out that, you know, those could be good seconds. Um, but it's, it's still, struck, man, <laughs> like, yeah, from, you, you know, from talking from Sacramento's perspective, it's like, okay, well, that's so low risk. Like you, you do yeah, it for a right. guy like this. Right. Uh, what was the ideal return for a Duarte in your mind? Look, I mean, every pick, the second you make it is not worth the pick slot that they had. Right. Like if, if someone offered the pit, like if some, the Pacers offered Jairus Walker for the eighth pick in a future draft, like I bet a lot of teams were like, no, even though he was just the eighth pick, that's just how it works. So he had a good rookie year. So I felt like a late lotto pick for Duarte would have made sense a year ago right now. Uh, but then he stunk last year. So in my head, he had like late first value, like 24 to 30 ish. And the thing is, those teams are typically good. And he's better on good teams than a rebuilding team, just kind of given his skill set and age. So that's kind of the value I thought they'd get. Like, I kind of thought the return could be, you know, I don't, I, Kings 2024 is to Atlanta, right? So like Kings 2026 top, like 20 protected or something, because they should still be awesome then. So that's kind of what I thought it'd be in my head. Two seconds are still good. Like Dallas, who knows what Dallas will be in 2028? Yeah. <laughs> who knows what Dallas will be in Three months um so that make like i guess that's a good enough second that you're like all right that that makes sense but i i thought he had late first value myself and maybe it's too good enough seconds that they felt like they got close to that anyway um but you know obviously rookie skill contracts are more valuable stuff like that he definitely didn't have the pick he got drafted at value even like the 20th pick was probably too much but there were teams that liked him there were still teams that liked him so i thought that it might be a little higher than it ultimately ended up being but i get why they did it that value and i get those seconds having value in their head like who what what are the odds that you would say that more than two players in the kings right now are still in the kings in 2030 right <laughs> pretty low there, there's like there's about yeah. two or three yeah <laughs> right so and even just, then you just never know you just never know. right um the last two things before i get you out of here tony um Got to ask your perspective on watching Domas on a different team last year, <laughs> the team success they were able to have, um, and, and just him being third team All NBA, All Star, getting recognition. Um, some of what that he already got in Indiana, but what was that experience like for for you? It was cool. Uh, it was cool. This is the kind of player he is, just this like fu kind of guy, and you know his best. The th the thing he with the Pacers is playing with miles just always made it a little trickier, right? Just That's just how it was going to be. And those two of their best four players. So like you try to make it work, but one of them is in a worse position on one end of the floor all the time. And every year, except for ironically, the year they actually traded him every year, their net rating was better with just one. Right. And it always made sense why they kept trying it. It just didn't work. And then the final year it does work. The whole team was terrible. So they moved on from him. But I thought because of that, oh, in Sacramento, and he is the only center all the time, and he's not going to be as far away from the rim on defense. Like, this is going to be awesome for him. And guess what? It was. Uh, so that made a ton of sense to me that that all clicked. Uh, Mike Brown is a great coach for him. Fox was a great partner for him in terms of the stuff he's good at. And he didn't have to be pulled away from the rim as much. They didn't have to juggle his minutes with any other big man. Like, it just made sense that he'd fit really well there. So the experience for me was just kind of like, yeah, this <laughs> this makes sense, I guess. I mean, it's it, it's not 
it's not like I would say he did anything like so much better than he ever did in Indiana. He was just in a much better position to do them all the time, which I think is is important to set guys up for success. Like, I guess his handoff game was a little better because the Kings had better shooters than the Pacers ever had. But in general, it felt like he was just like a lot better at the stuff he was already good at and added a little bit of natural growth and efficiency and was awesome. It was really cool to see. And we've seen on the other side, Tyrese uh, grow into a star, just get his max money. Um, I had a blast covering Tyrese just also from that perspective. He's amazing to get to interact with. Um, It's pretty fun covering Tyrese, right? Am I going to get in trouble for talking about Tyrese? This is the funniest thing fans do when it's like, you know, they get like Sabonis. I'll ask him about the trade. And everyone's like, why is he talking about the trade? It's like, because I asked. Because I asked right. him a question. <laughs> That's why, like, this is not this is not his fault. This is my fault. Uh, it goes for both guys. Yeah, I love covering. I absolutely love covering Tyrese Albert. And he, he, like, you know this, but he just gets it. Like, every single interaction he's in is never too, too small for him. And he just gets exactly what level of seriousness he needs and what is needed from him in that moment. That applies to him as a basketball player, too. And... I, I don't want to speak out of turn. You can correct me if you feel like this is wrong, but similar to Sabonis needing to not have another center standing right next to him when he was playing, Halliburton not playing with our point guard also seems to be a, quite the factor in his jump with the Pacers. So as good of a trade as you could possibly get in the NBA these days. It's a truly rare win-win <laughs> um, where I think both sides feel pretty dang good about how they made out. Uh, but the very last thing for you, Tony, is this the year that Buddy Heald finally gets traded? I feel like every oh. single year on his contract that it's on this deal, it's been his Buddy Heald going to get traded first tour in Sacramento. I feel like I was still hearing things when he was in Indiana of, oh, is he going to end up getting moved somewhere else? Um, do you expect those conversations to be lingering again around, around Buddy? I do, but not for the reasons that they have before. Like in the past, it's like, oh, he'd probably be better on a contender if he can shoot and like, makes a lot of money he's overpaid now cap's gone up so he's probably paid fairly the reason and he's tight with tyrese halliburton which is of course extremely important to the pacers um now the reason they would consider it and would do it is an expiring contract you just it's just what you do right like they're not going to win the championship this year they're probably like in the seven through ten range in the east like if you have a vet who you don't know if you're going to resign you trade them like that's just what you do uh unless you're the toronto raptors for some reason so I just kind of think that if they get the right value, they'll do it because they can't lose them for nothing. And it's a big salary slot. So it's kind of important to either get assets for it or roll that salary slot over. And he's extension eligible. He's renegotiation eligible. I don't think they would do that because of many reasons, but um, he he actually is playing better for them than he had, ever had before, even though he's still a liability on defense. Um, but the contract part of it's going to change things. And I don't know this, but I presume uh, a guy you pay $22 million is going to start in Bruce Brown. And I presume that Benedict Matherin, who started to close last season, is going to start, which means Buddy Hill's going to come off the bench, which also makes him just slightly less valuable in general because his minutes will be lower. So I, I think it'll be something talked about all season for a million reasons that make a ton of sense for the Pacers to do it. But if they're playing really well, maybe they just keep him because if they're playing well, he's probably playing well. Yeah, interesting scenario. I, I do uh I would enjoy seeing Buddy on like a true contender, like spacing the floor for somebody. Yeah, I think it'd be an interesting experience. He would definitely have his moments of okay, you need to relax a little bit, but <laughs> he can really space the floor. That like it's always made the most sense. Like if the Bucks had Buddy healed, he'd shoot like 
49% from three. Like, yeah. I don't know how they could get him, but he'd be like perfect for them. Just like they don't even have anything close to that dimension on their team. It's made like that the Lakers trade did and then didn't for him for the same reason, right? Like right. all these contending teams, he would make a ton of sense to me, except for maybe the Nuggets, but he just would make a ton of sense to me. And I, I don't know if any of them will actually like if any one good shooter gets injured this year on in a contender, that team's already going to be like, all right, <laughs> buddy, Hill might be our answer. And that would make a ton of sense on an expiring. I think he could be pretty appealing um, to some teams. Yeah. He's so. probably not that high because of contract reasons too. like maybe as a rental. So, but you, but the Pacers have to consider it. I mean, they just have to. Yeah. Well, that's all I got for you, Tony. Um, I appreciate you coming on the show again. It's Tony East covers the Pacers. Oh, wait. Can I yes. cheat and ask you a question? Of course. What happened to the Pacers second that they sent to the Kings? I know it got traded like a million times. So is there going to be like another player that, you know, we talk about who wins the trade. Like, is Colby Jones going to be awesome and, and make it so the Kings win the trade? Because he wasn't with the Pacers pick, right? They moved. Was he? Uh, you know, I... Pacers no, he was been, not. Uh, he um seven thirty eight. Yes, think? and they moved yeah. up with Boston, um, to get that pick. Ah, uh, that's not as fun. Yeah. That could have been funny if like Colby Jones is like an amazing rookie, and it's like, oh, maybe the Kings did. <laughs> I didn't even piece that together. <laughs> yeah, I I had overlooked the the final piece of this deal. The yeah, true decider. We're calling it too early, man. Yeah, yeah, the true decider. <laughs> Kobe Jones can just really decide this all. Was thir- so a 38 was in the trade to get up to 34? If so, man. Yes. There we go. See? Yeah. See? The true decider. The Part of Kobe Jones. Him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he he doesn't right, even so. realize what's on his shoulders. No, you're good, Tony. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, again, Tony East covers the Pacers for SI Pacers, Forbes, WTHR. Am I saying that correctly? And the Locked On Pacers podcast. Um, appreciate you joining definitely take a look at tony's work um, as well as my own work and all the other great guys and gals of the king's carol take a look at their patreon to support local independent king's coverage and if you enjoyed this episode of the king's post podcast please subscribe rate and review and hear from me again next couple days